Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and the fabulous Christopher. Chris, tell us who we've gone. Morning, Alina. We have got Dr. John Wolfe, who is a historian and researcher who specialises in the Victorian period and has written books on the wonders, lifting the curtain of the freak show, circus and the Victorian age, amongst others. And he's here today about his new book, which he co-authored Dr. Tisha Abraham, a book on black Victorians. John, welcome to History Hack. Thanks very much for having me, and, and Keisha sends her regards, and sorry she couldn't be here today, but she's here in spirit. <laughs> John, this is not your first rodeo on with us, is it? No, it's not. No, no, you very kindly had me on when uh, The Wonders came out. We did, and that was with me and Alex, and we had a right good blast chatting away about, oh my God, that was some of the craziest stuff from the Victorian. I mean, the Victorians are just mad. I know, they're next level, aren't they? <laughs> well, that was the thing that really sort of uh, inspired this this latest project, really. It was on the back of the work on the Victorian Freak Show that in a sort of very roundabout way led me to, to this topic. Well, you co-wrote it with Keisha Abraham. Mm. And do you know what? She's not here with us, unfortunately. So tell us a little bit about her and how did you guys work together and how did you manage to kind of put all this together? Oh, well, so she's amazing. I mean, she's based in Miami at the moment and she's she's currently traveling around, uh, but she's coming to London soon. So we'll we'll be uh, doing a couple of uh, events together. Um, but it was kind of it was, it was slightly strange, really, in that she had worked closely with uh, my dad in the realm of international education and black Jewish dialogue. So I, I knew Keisha for, you know, for, for quite some time. Um, but initially, I'd set out to build on the work of the uh, Victorian freak show by looking at the phenomenon of ethnographic exhibitions or so-called human zoos, the display of, of people from a, across the globe brought to Britain um, and presented almost as, as freaks of nature on the basis of the colour of their skin. And so I was looking at this phenomenon of ethnographic exhibitions, which kind of went from small scale transitory affairs at the start of the 19th century to large scale um, commercial entertainment 
forms of entertainment by the end of the 19th century. But the more I was researching and coming across like, you know, so-called Zulus and cannibals and and the the sort of racism and, and inferiority that was uh, imputed onto these individuals, um, the more I was actually being taken to uh, different archives and to a world outside of the ethnographic exhibition. Um, and there's been some great work on ethnographic exhibitions. Um, and I you know, started speaking to, to Keisha about about some of the other research and the long story short essentially i decided i didn't want to write um and focus on uh the history of ethnographic exhibitions confining uh black victorian experience just to that one realm of entertainment and in fact looking at the interconnection and that's a really important point the interconnection interdependency between british history and black history in the 19th century. And so with Keisha, um, we looked at a range of different individuals um, across the sp social spectrum in all different areas and walks uh, of Victorian life and decided to tell a story uh, about the Victorian age, which focused um, on race uh, in the 19th century. Which is uh, really interesting because it's they have quite a roller coaster through the Napoleonic period, but at the very beginning, they, we, the British Empire have just abolished transatlantic slave trade, and we have people of the black community living in England. What was the aftershock of the abolition for them, and who were the, the black community in England at the time? Yeah, so you you have ab abolition coming in um, at the beginning of the 19th century. And, you know, I think it's really worth saying that you know, the call for abolitionism also involved um, spearheaded uh, by black British um, communities, the Sons of Africa, an important uh, black organisation in Britain. Lots of women were also involved in the abolitionist campaign. And when Britain uh, abolished the, the slave trade, um, you know, there was still slavery that was occurring within the British Empire. And crucially, you know, Britain's economy was still dependent um, on the slave on the slave trade and on the enslaved uh, in America. I mean, the cotton that was being picked by the enslaved in America, um, we were still uh, benefiting from. And so Keisha and I really explored this and uh, you know, asked the question, OK, well, at the beginning of the 19th century, what was the black British uh, presence? And, you know, towards the end of the 18th century, you know, it's quite hard to get demographic figures, but you had about 10,000 to, to 20,000 uh, black people living in Britain. And they were in all different walks of, of, of life, predominantly within the working classes, like the majority um, of, of the, the population at that time. And you could... Uh, uh, experienced the black British community uh, as domestic servants, working as sailors, dock workers, labourers. There was a sort of black labour aristocracy as well. Um, so you had uh, a range of uh, black, Victoria, uh, black Victorians at the start of this uh, period who were within the working classes, but also within the, the middle classes and indeed the upper classes uh, as well. So you have a kind of, you can't really homogenise the, the experience necessarily. They were different, um, different individuals uh, in different walks of life. Let's come back to this idea of social class. Because the question is, how visible was the black community in sources when you're researching your book? Mm. And is it dependent on their social class? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, across the piece, really, one of the really challenging things for Keisha and I was to find um, 
examples of, of black Victorians, uh, you know, across the, the the social spectrum. Now, I think it's really important to state, uh, and we want to be very clear about this, we happily labour in the shadows of many great historians, uh, primarily black historians before us. So there's a wealth of secondary material on this. And, you know, black historians have been writing about this since the 19th century. Um, so we're not kind of trailblazers in that sense. So we very much relied on the wealth of uh, secondary material. But we also got very much uh, involved in the archives and different forms of archives. And one of the challenges that you find when you approach the archives is um, ethnicity wasn't mentioned in the national censuses uh, until 1991. So, you know, when you when they've brought in the national census around 1937, um, ethnicity wasn't wasn't mentioned. So that was one of the areas that made it quite hard to find um, black Victorians. Um, you also had, you know, when you go through the censuses, just because someone was born in a particular place, that doesn't necessarily indicate uh, ethnicity. And there were also a range of other sort of genealogical uh, issues that, that that made it challenging. So you had that sort of um, archival um, ob obstruction, if you like. Um, but then there was also whitewashing. There was also general uh, indifference, which meant that a number of key black Victorians um, weren't centralised in, in the history and you had to really seek uh, to find them. But what we found is when, whether we were going through different forms of archives, uh, diaries, um, local collections, um, books, pamphlets, and of course, secondary material, there were um, uh, enough resources uh, for us to to make the point that Black Victorians weren't just, you know, uh, present in the 19th century, and they were across social, all social classes, but they were also uh, pivotal and influential in the creation of uh, Great Britain. So in terms of social class, you know, actually, it, it was a general difficulty, um, but we found numerous examples of Black Victorians in the working middle uh, and upper classes. You, you look at quite a few individuals in the book. This one caught my, caught my eye, especially because I live very, with, I can see Sheerness from here. So William Brown, mm. um, who was he and John Finn and the, what was their experience of Broadmoor? Yeah, so in going to all of these different archives, we also went into archives of, of mental asylums um, and that was Bethlehem Royal Hospital uh, and Broadmoor Archives and other other um, private uh, institutions. And um, the story of William Brown uh, was a really tricky one to tell. And Keisha and I talked a lot about how to effectively tell that story because it was key for us that we imbued um, the individuals with agency, used their voice where we could uh, and situated them within broader net networks and contexts. You know, we uh, were avoiding this troubling narrative of black exceptionalism that there were certain individuals who smashed the class the glass ceiling and succeeded when others didn't um so we were very kind of careful in our in our approach to stories so but william brown is a was a case in point where he was born in british guyana in 1832 he joined the navy in his mid 20s um and during his career in the navies he rose to the rank uh, of petty officer and he was awarded a, a conduct uh, a medal for good conduct um at a time actually when black mariners faced a, a, a lot of discrimination in 1871 he marries uh, and he has uh, two daughters and a son 
and he retires from the Navy in 1881 and settles down uh, in Kent. He's got his naval pension and he starts working as a labourer. But unfortunately, as was the case for many sailors, his mental health started to take uh, a turn for the worse. And his story kind of hits the press in 1883 after um, he had a particular episode which tragically led uh, him to murder his wife um, and set fire to the house uh, and also attack his stepson, uh, who he was living with. So it was a really troubling story. Um, but we kind of we, we pieced together through through the archives what happened. We had we had some help with uh, important archivists in this work um, and we followed him to Broadmoor. He was declared criminally insane um, and sent to Broadmoor, which had been set up in 1863 for the for the criminally insane. Um, and while at Broadmoor, um, he his mental health, you know, to, he, he was crying constantly. He was suicidal. Uh, he wasn't eating properly. Um, and he died in Broadmoor uh, shortly afterwards. Now, what was really sort of within the this dark, story what was really moving was we found um with assistance the letters that one of his daughters wrote to him um she had been taken to a workhouse uh with her two siblings and she wrote these really moving letters to to her dad like dear daddy um informing him of uh what was happening uh, in in the family and that one of her sisters had gone into domestic service um her other brother had followed in his footsteps and, and joined the navy um and it was really touching to, to to see those to see those letters so william brown was one of a number of of black victorians we found um within um uh, mental asylums in the 19th century the other chris you mentioned uh john flynn um he spent a total of uh, 47 years inside Victorian institutions. Um, he was originally arrested for burglary in 1855. Like William Brown, um, he had been uh, in the Navy, he'd been a sailor. Um, he was born in, in the West Indies. Um, arrested in 1885 for burglary, he's sent to prison and we went to the Lancashire archives and found some some um, records of his time there. But while in prison, he began manifesting signs uh, of insanity and he was transferred to Rainhill Asylum, uh, County Asylum, um, one of three in Lancashire. And while there and again, we then went to archives to find his case uh, history. And we saw reports um, of his time there. He was wetting himself frequently. Uh, he worked a little. Uh, he needed a lot of supervision. There were reports that he started swallowing stones and lead. And I should say, based on the notes that we had, um, it was saying that he had no education uh, and very little was was known about him. Um, cut a long story short, in 1860, uh, he gets into a fight. He kills another patient and ultimately ends up uh, in Broadmoor, where he's violent um, and, and isolated. Uh, and he dies within within Broadmoor uh, Mental Asylum, having spent 47 years uh, inside these, these different institutions. And it was very hard to find much more about John Flynn, but, you know, in our book, we piece together his life from what we can. And one of the, again, you know, one of the sort of um, empowering things we found in this story was the... The medical directors who wrote these notes were often very kind of cold and matter of fact. 
in in the history notes and in the case file notes but what uh came out it was just like three three words um bearing in mind that they said he had no education he didn't know anything about his 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 life um they did report that he said uh, and i quote that he was a native of the west indies um and they got that uh, in the records and you know we 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 talked a lot about that because there was something about that reclamation of identity that recognition of where he came despite uh, his inner torment um which which was powerful so yeah that's that's uh, william brown and, and john flynn I think we should continue this about people individually because it's really interesting. I'm really fascinated. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat right now and I need to know more about the people that you've written about. So tell us who was Edward Albert because he was quite an interesting person, wasn't he? Edward Albert, yeah. Another fascinating character who, you know, in our book, we we start, we look at kind of different areas of, of the, the social spectrum and Edward Albert uh, was one within uh, in the working classes. Um, and again, like William Brown and, and John Flynn, um, he had uh, worked in the Navy. He joined the Royal Navy when he was about nine years old. He was born in Jamaica um, and he worked his way up as a he started as a cabin boy before he became cook and eventually head cook. Um, and in 1851, he goes on a journey from uh, Glasgow to China um, on, on one of the ships that he's working off. And it's when he's off the Cape of off uh, the coast of Cape Horn, the temperatures plummet and he suffers uh, frostbite to his legs. Um, and the the crew on the ship decide uh, to put his legs uh, in an oven uh, to try and cure um, the frostbite. And, you know, there's some very, very uh, harrowing descriptions from Edward Albert himself. And again, you know, we. Keisha and I talked a lot about how do you give these individuals uh, a voice um, and where we could, we, we went to the sources to, to get their voice. And I might say a bit more about Edward Albert's voice, um, but they put his legs in an oven um, and they burst um, and he essentially loses both his legs and is dumped by his shipmates um, in uh, 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 Latin America um, and is, has to make his way home. Um, and so he's he he meets um, uh... in a sudden flash. It all comes clear. It's a eureka moment an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Mayhew, Henry Mayhew, um, shortly after this. Now, Henry Mayhew is a social investigator uh, who was going out and and writing about uh, the the London poor at the time. And Mayhew speaks to Edward Albert, who tells him his story. Now, what's really interesting about Edward Albert is he's determined. He says this to Mayhew. He's determined to get his rights. He wants to get the money that he's owed from that ship. A huge injustice has been done to him. And he's determined uh, to get what's, what's rightly his, his wages from that ship. So when he meets uh, Henry Mayhew, he's living this sort of transitory life between Glasgow uh, and London. And now he 
he finds some temporary success um, in Glasgow and he op- opens a coffee sh- coffee house uh, and sells homemade pastries um, until that business collapses and he moves down to London, where he's living amongst the working classes uh, and, and he's sweeping the streets. He's a crossing sweeper. Um, now, Mayhew in his book, London Labour and the London Poor, introduces Edward Albert as a crossing sweeper who has lost both his legs. And he sort of classifies him uh, within the sort of um, working class wanderers, uh, you know, those who live a transitory life uh, at the time, they're living on the breadline. When you dig into Edward Albert's story, you start seeing that actually that's a really unfair, massively unfair characterization. Someone who worked in the Navy, uh, he had a family as well, um, someone who started his own business and crucially, 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 wrote his own memoir, um, which he sold um, uh, uh, on on the streets. Um, And so that memoir had been found by another literary scholar. Uh, We got that memoir and we used that as a basis to, um, you know, construct his life and give Edward Albert uh, a voice. So, again, there was this very sad uh, and traumatic and troubling story that Keisha and I um, explored and yet, even within that, there's this real sense of agency and a fight. Edward Albert determined to get his rights um, and wasn't just a crossing sweeper uh, who'd lost both his legs, but was a man who had a you know, fascinating and varied career in history. And, and another individual that comes up was uh, William Cuffey, if I've got mm. the pronunciation right. I mean, I did the, the Chartists at school, God, a long time ago, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a name I recognised, but he was actually a Chartist campaigner who campaigned for male suffrage and a fair electoral system. But how, as, as, a, as a man of colour, how was he viewed by his contemporaries and even by the people he was trying to uh, get voting rights for? Mm. So, yeah, William Cuffey, um, bo- born in Kent, very much within the press, described as a sort of uh, militant uh, black chartist uh, leader um, who was ultimately charged... Um, with trying to levy war against the Queen. Now that, you know, pan out and you know, there's a number of black Victorians who were involved in uh, politics and the fights for working class uh, rights. And, and William Cuffey was one of those. Um, and, you know, he wasn't just a sort of side piece in the Chartist movement. He was absolutely essential to it. And, and, and we explore that within our book. At the time, uh, the press very much demonised him. I mean, Punch, the satirical um, newspaper, um, you know, mocked him, mocked his uh, skin colour, um, and uh, yeah, really demonised him. The Times, uh, on on the other hand, sort of presented him as this kind of destabilising alien import, if you like, who was who was causing trouble amongst the working classes um, and was causing trouble for for the establishment. And even within the sort of the working class press, it was really interesting how he was uh, presented because some of the the presentations of of William Cuffey it, you know, focused on on the, the colour of his skin and presented him almost as if he was grateful that Britain had um, abolished slavery and therefore he was sort of continuing the the fight for liberty by working um, uh, uh, and leading the, the, the working classes uh, to emancipation. So, you know, the colour of his skin was a really important piece in how he was uh, perceived um, and on the whole it led to uh, general uh, denigration 
Um, and he was found guilty in 1848 at, at the Old Bailey uh, and transported uh, for life uh, to Australia. And he settled in Tasmania uh, where he died. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, unfortunately, racism was rife and William Cuffey was not just a fighting against an oppressive state um, and an oppressive system, uh, but 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 also, you know, in, connected to that uh, racism. So I got so involved in listening to you speak. I was like, wait, hold on a minute. I've got to ask the next question. <laughs> so now you have drawn me into this so much that I think we could sit here and listen for ages. But Sarah Forbes Bonetta, if I've pronounced that correctly. Yeah. She was a social experiment by the noble classes to prove that no matter your race, you could be improved with quotation marks as they saw it. How true is this? I think that's a, a really fair assessment of uh, Sarah Forbes Bonetta. And uh, historian Caroline Bressy has done a lot of work uh, on her story, um, as has uh, as has others. And she, Sarah Forbes Bonetta, she comes to Britain uh, in 1850, uh, having essentially been given um, to a British naval captain as a gift uh, to Queen Victoria. Um, she was uh, from... Uh, present-day uh, um, uh, Benin um, at the time known as Dahomey um, and it's not really clear what happened in the early phase of, of her life uh, but she was captured by uh, the king of Dahomey, uh, kept, kept at his palace and, and given over uh, as a gift in quotation marks to this British naval captain who brings her over uh, to Britain. Um, so she meets Queen Victoria in 1850 and long story short, it's decided that she should um, go into missionary circles, that she should be educated. Um, and she's, she's taken to Sierra Leone, um, to West Africa, uh, where she's trained up in missionary work. Um, she then comes back to, to, to Britain in 1855 uh, and uh, is raised uh, with, with missionaries. Now the idea I think for this was that she would be seen as someone who could prove that with um, British civilization, Christianity, all you know, quotation marks, that uh, if she could be improved, that that, that so could uh, the rest of the um, African uh, people. Um, and you know, the other kind of side to that was she was also. Uh, expected to conform to the Victorian ideals of uh, womanhood. So in 1862, she, she marries uh, a Yorubian polymath from Sierra Leone um, in, a, in a ceremony in, in Brighton. And so, you know, again, we, we, we explore her, her, her full life within the book, but I think it's very much fair to say that she's seen as this kind of opportunity to uh, improve um, African people uh, and, and prove that the missionary endeavor, which was so important uh, for many in the 19th century, uh, had legs, if you like, um, that, you know, Britain could go out and save souls um, and, uh, yeah, you know, spread Christianity. So she fits into a kind of broader practice uh, of, of um, missionary work at the time. Another way for communities to become more visible is through art and culture. What was the black community's impact on British culture, like art and theatre? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It was massive. I, I, I mean, it's so. It's in a way, it's so hard to to answer that question um, because it depends, you know, in what area of culture you look at. So, I mean, whether it's in in music, whether it's in theatre, whether it's in uh, the circus, uh, whether it's um, you know, you 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 name it. There's there's an important contribution. Um, you know, there's, there's a few individuals that, that that we explore in the book who. Um, kind of exemplify that contribution one being Ira Aldridge who uh, had a career spanning like 40 years he performed across Europe Russia Austro-Hungary Empire um, and he uh, performed in Shakespearean um, plays abolitionist melodramas comedy um, and although he faced a lot of racism um, particularly in London uh, he performed in like Othello Richard III um, Hamlet. Uh, he brought. He adapted his own plays. So he brought an adaptation of the Black Doctor uh, to the to, to the stages of Britain in 1847. Uh, he adapted Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which hadn't been seen for like over a hundred years uh, in 1850. Um, and you know, although he faced racism, he was also uh, praised in the press, uh, in some quarters of the press, for his acting abilities. So in the realm of theatre. You have um, uh, a litany of of black Victorians uh, who contributed um, to the development of theatre at the time. In the realm of other forms of kind of more popular entertainment, someone like Pablo Fanque, um, William Darby, who was born in in a in a workhouse in 1810 in Norwich. Uh, he's um, apprenticed to the circus from a young age. Uh, in 1841, he starts his own circus. Um, and by the mid 19th century, he's filling amphitheaters of 3000 people or more. And he really did a lot to bring um, respectability to the circus, which in the early 19th century was seen as a sort of um, uh, kind of stigmatized, lowly form of entertainment. And by the end of the 19th century, it was a very commercial, uh, respectable form of entertainment. So someone like Pablo Fanque had a really important role in the development of culture uh, in that sense. Then within the realms of, I mean, I could go on and on, and literature and art as well. Someone like Fanny Eaton, uh, who was born in Jamaica, um, and met Simeon Solomon, a, pre, uh, a kind of upcoming uh, painter within pre-Raphaelite circles. Um, and um, Fanny Eaton became, uh, as some historians have described it, a kind of pre-Raphaelite muse. She was painted by numerous different pre-Raphaelite painters um, and, you know, entered um, and informed 
that visual landscape alongside many others as well. And again, let me just stress when I highlight these individuals, these are not isolated uh, cases, but form part of uh, a broader network. So across culture, um, you, know, you have a, an important black presence. Uh, music is a whole other stream. And in our book, we talk about Samuel Coleridge Taylor, um, who uh, w- w- was born in Britain um, and uh, brought the sounds of the African diaspora um, to life. And you know, his Hiawatha wedding feast, which premiered in 1898, um, was played uh, a- across the world. So all different forms is a long convoluted way of saying like in all different forms of, of culture, there was a really important um, uh, black contribution uh, to-, to different spheres within in the realm of culture. You bring so many individual stories to light and I love this. I am enjoying myself beyond anything listening to all these individual stories, but you must have one which was the most moving for you or one that was the most interesting for you. Oh yeah. um, So Keisha would give, give, give a different answer. I think Keisha, you know, she, she's a, a, um, a scholar of um, the, the African diaspora and post-colonial literature um, and a very proud uh, black feminist who's done a, a lot of work within this space. And she um, was very much drawn to um, the sort of black abolitionists who came over to, to Britain in the 19th century, people like Sarah Parker Raymond, um, who really called Britain out for you know, their previous involvement in slavery, but also to, to highlight the ills of slavery in America at the time. So I'm sure, I'm sure unfortunately she, she's not here, but Keisha would give, give an answer that would focus on um, African-Americans and, and their, their contribution um, and important work uh, in forwarding the, the abolitionist course in Great Britain. Um, from, from, my, from my perspective, uh, you know, it's so hard to, to, to highlight a single individual. I mean, Sam, Samuel Crowther uh, really, intre- really sort of, I was really drawn to his story, uh, uh, a uh, black bishop um, who was uh, ordained, ordained into the Church of England in the 1840s. Um, and at Canterbury Cathedral in 1864 uh, um, was given the, the bishopric of uh, Niger uh, in West Africa. So this was a, a black bishop who was moving in the you know the corridors of uh, Lambeth Palace, um, met Queen Victoria, and um, you know in a way kind of goes back to Sarah Forbes Bonetta as well. He he was part of uh, a kind of drive to to spread Christianity. Um, and uh, an example of a black Victorian that, you know, unlike Edward Albert or uh, William Brown or John Flynn, wasn't on, on the social margins, but was really kind of uh, within the upper echelons of, of society. Um, and yeah, I found his story fascinating. So, so it's a really bad answer. Like there's, there, there, there's so many <laughs> to choose from. That makes it all the more interesting that instead of yeah, there's just one person in the entire period. It's like there's so many. It's it, it makes it a much more uh, engaging story. But the Victorian period is quite long, and the nature of the country and society changes between her coronation and her death in 1901. So we have a new century, whole different outlook for most of the world. But had anything changed for the black community, and if so, was it for for the better? Mm. I mean, so 
you know, and again, going back to that point of you know, black history and British history being intimately uh, intertwined, um, you know, general improvements in sanitation and health and transportation links and all of that, which that benefited everyone. So that 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 included uh, black black Victorians within that, and there remained massive social ills that affected everyone um, within the, the realm of you know racism across the 19th century uh, you see a hardening of racial attitudes uh, particularly with you know different um uh discourses in the realm of science the spread of blackface minstrelsy really started to kind of um import ideas of black inferiority um, sorry not import that's the wrong way of, of, of phrasing it really started to proliferate within a popular realm, the idea of black inferiority, um, which was already being sort of bolstered in scientific circles. Um, various events abroad also led to a hardening uh, of racial attitudes in Britain. Um, so, you know, attitudes became uh, even, even more um, uh, intense. By, you know, 1919, you have a series of, of race riots, you know, explosion, a series of race riots from South Shield, Salford, Hull, London, Liverpool, Cardiff, uh, with, with white people uh, attacking uh, black and Asian seamen. So you see this sort of rise in, in um, uh, racism. Uh, and then you've also got kind of important countervailing forces at the same time. Uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, for example, by the end of the 19th century, in 1900, you have the first Pan-African conference in London, in in London, in Westminster, uh, which was, you know, designed to assert the social, political, and legal rights um, of black people across the globe. You had the rise of a, a black British press. Um, you had, uh, you know. Not even the rise, maybe not even the right word. You had greater or renewed um, networks and contacts between um, uh, black Victorians across the globe. So they were kind of countervailing forces as well. Um, but, you know, life for many people remained uh, very difficult. And, um, yeah, the, the, the 20th century becomes a different, a whole different other story. Yeah, John, this has been absolutely fantastic. We could probably sit here talking about this for the rest of the day. I, I know Alina's really enjoying it as well. Could you just uh, remind everyone what the book's title is, where they can get it, and uh, when it's available? I believe it's out now, isn't it? Yes, it's out now. So it's uh, by myself and Dr. Keisha Abraham. It's, no, it's called uh, Black Victorians Hidden in History. Um, and yeah, hopefully available uh, at all good bookstores and is a, a small contribution to a much broader uh, historiography on this. Um, we're always keen to, to stress that we, as I said, happily labour in the shadows of, of many. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, it provides a, a good introduction uh, to this uh, you know, fascinating topic. And um, yeah, I hope people uh, enjoy the book and get something from it. Hopefully he can join us next time because I think that would be make a really interesting conversation. Absolutely. John, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Much. Thank you both. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 
10% of every sale via our bookshop, supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.